Greetings humans and welcome to Lefteris Ask Science edition number 12. In this edition of the podcast, we will answer questions like what is intensive farming? Is there a way for agriculture and biodiversity to coexist? And how do ecologists do the research in order to construct stories that might span hundreds of years? With me to help answer these questions will be Dr. Sue McIntyre from the Australian National University. I recently read an article that she wrote in the conversation entitled Intensive Farming is Eating Up the Australian Continent, but there's another way. Dr. McIntyre was kind enough to jump on Skype with me and discuss her work in agriculture and biodiversity. As always, before we start with the show, if you want to help, you could share the episode and subscribe to the podcast and give it a rating wherever you get your podcasts, and that would really help tremendously. Also, if you have any questions or suggestions, Go ahead and follow me on Twitter at lefteris underscore asks and email me at lefteris at lefterisasks.com. Let's now meet Dr. Sue McIntyre. My name is Dr. Sue McIntyre. I'm a botanist and an ecologist and I've worked in uh, agricultural landscapes for many decades now and my main research interest has been in understanding how we can find compatible ways for agriculture and biodiversity conservation to uh, coexist. And as with any research, we started by discussing what was the question that they were trying to answer with their research. The question that we had and worked as a team on was how much needs to be left on the landscape, the fundamental question, how much needs to be left on the landscape to enable um, the ecological functions and the ecosystem services to, to still be present uh, and, and most of the biodiversity to exist but still have uh, commercial production of, of livestock and, and crops. Simple question, but I wanted to understand what were the problems in the way that the earth has been used in order for them to need to answer this question. When Europeans arrived uh, some 200 years ago, uh, initially um, we just ran, we just imported livestock and ran it across the landscape. And everyone was absolutely overwhelmed at the quality of the pastures at that time. These were the native Australian plants that formed um, pastures and grasslands that had largely been um, cared for by Aboriginal uh, people for many tens of thousands of years. Uh, so initially it was terrific, but over time, of course, overgrazing uh, really did have a very bad effect. Uh, the other uh, major impact of Europeans has been the removal of trees. So the ecosystem that's so important in Australia for agricultural production is uh, a, a vegetation type called grassy eucalypt woodlands. So these are where the trees are relatively widely spaced, um, there aren't many shrubs underneath and there's a, a ground layer of dense perennial grasses and many species of wildflower and sedge and so on. So there's a great diversity on the ground layer and this was the the resource that the early settlers used. But over time, the development of um, new technologies was sought very rapidly. So many species were brought in from Europe because they were considered superior. 
and the technology of um, fertiliser development and cultivation and so on were also obviously brought in and developed further by Europeans. So over time, these uh, these grassy woodlands, which extended all the way from Cape York Peninsula, the very far tropical north, down to the cool temperate areas in Tasmania, that was a continuous ecosystem of many millions of hectares. Over the last 100 years in particular, those ecosystems now have been converted to cropland um, and, and sown pastures through the use of fertilisers and, cult and cultivation and the addition of exotic seeds. And there's now, um, now these ecosystems are classed as either threatened, uh, endangered or critically endangered um, under our Vegetation Protection Acts. Unfortunately, the Vegetation Protection Acts haven't been effective in, in agricultural areas. And so we have a, a major problem whereby we've lost our natural ecosystems and yet they do so much to support um, the production systems anyway, but we fail to see what those supports are often. There's also a very critical issue that's cultural, which is uh, that these uh, eucalypt-studded uh, landscapes are the quintessential Australian iconic landscape, the one that people come to see, people go on holidays, uh, and we're, we're, we've removed them. We're removing them. There's, you know, relatively little left now. And so there's, it's more than just a economic or a biodiversity conservation issue. It's also a cultural issue. Australia is an interesting case, especially because it has been relatively isolated for a very long time. So we can see what is the effect of introducing new species of plants and animals in an isolated ecosystem. And it seems that introducing species that would not naturally exist in an environment has a tremendous effect, not only on the species that the land can sustain, but on the quality and quantity it can grow as well. During our discussion, Dr. McIntyre also explained to me how a study like this takes place in the frame of the scientific method. I, I know you've been interested in, in the sort of scientific method because I listened to that particular podcast and I was I was reflecting on well what what do ecologists do uh, with a we work in a system that is um, as you know a very complex system ecology is about bringing in all the factors of soil yeah. environment climate um, other organisms people and the things people do and all the processes of disturbance and so on. So it is a very, um, it, it's not a, a tight experimental um, uh, arrangement that we have. And, and one of the best ways we can explore how ecosystems work and how they respond is to use what's called natural experiments. Uh, and that is um, taking, uh, identifying areas of land that have had particular land use histories uh, and comparing them with, with other areas of land. So, for example, um, looking at areas that have never been fertilised or cultivated, comparing them with areas that have. And, and that, that they're called natural experiments. And the reason they have to be natural experiments is no one funds experiments long enough um, to, you know, the, the decades or hundreds of years that are yeah. required to see the effects that sometimes take to change. We do do smaller experiments as well to um, fill in some of the knowledge gaps, uh, but uh, it, it's very much a uh, opportunistic uh, way of pulling together information to, uh, as well. So 
the synthesis of information is very important in ecology and the synthesis of information was very important in the putting together of these landscape design principles that we developed. Uh, we drew from, from many areas of work um, and many uh, sources of evidence to, to pull together the story. So by compiling information by many other short-term studies over the years, Dr. McIntyre and ecologists in general construct a narrative and find out how grazing has affected the landscape, meaning the areas where domestic livestock feeds in order for us to have meat, wool and other products. How plants have changed, how the birds or other animals coexist in the environment and many other parameters. It is important to understand that this research isn't detached from the reality of the farmers. The team that Dr. McIntyre was working with came up with some proportions for land usage, which we'll discuss later, but it didn't happen all behind a desk. The project in, in southeast Queensland, which we started in the early 1990s, uh, drew in a team of people from CSIRO, uh, an ecolo several ecologists, including myself, an agronomist, an economist, and uh, uh, a lot of um, field technical help as well. And then we worked with uh, people from land management agencies who had experience in the broader natural resource management issues like pasture management and so on. And we also worked with a group of um, four farms. It was a, a truly uh, ter terrific collaborative um, project. We also drew on a wider group uh, to come up with, we used what we call a modified Delphi approach to actually distill from people what they thought a sustainable landscape looked like based just on their background. So it was it was like a distillation of people's past experience and knowledge and understanding of the literature. So we came up with uh, some of these land um, management thresholds or land use thresholds, what was the maximum amount of cropping, how much woodland did, did you need, um, and... And then we did uh, a literature review beneath that to see where there was or wasn't justification for it. And so the the product of that was a, uh, a distillation of knowledge and then the literature evidence beneath it. And that's what I mean about the, the idea of synthesising uh, results. Intensive farming requires the addition of a lot of fertilizer, introducing plants and legumes that are not native, and mechanical help with the farming in order to maximize yield. Dr. McIntyre had a comparison of some areas that didn't follow that practice, and I was curious, how did they fare in terms of production? I guess part of the insight that uh, was really important for me is that I actually grew up in the more developed areas and had worked in some of the more developed areas. And if you talk to uh, agronomists or practitioners in farming in the south, they would tell you that you cannot farm unless you add fertiliser, cultivate, sow exotic uh, grasses and uh, legumes. And th th so that culture there, because they had come up with very effective methods of, of, of doing this, um, it contrasted completely with our landscapes that we worked in southeast Queensland where they hadn't they wanted the technology but they couldn't find the right 
species of plants to introduce to replace the native plants. So they were, and that meant they couldn't justify using fertilizer because of the cost of fertilizer. So they just kept using the native pastures and, and they were all making a living and they had viable farms and they had the most incredible healthy woodlands and an incredible diversity of wildlife and native plants. So it just occurred to me that there has to be, that there isn't only one answer to this, that, um, that you know, that there is a viable option of having a lower intensity use of the landscape and benefiting from the the uh, natural services that, that the native system provides um, and then have a coexistence of the biodiversity and productivity. And uh, this, of course, is problematic in um, in a culture where it's all about increasing inputs and increasing yields and so on. And so that work was, a, I guess, sort of sidelined, if you like, because the research was being driven by agribusiness funding, and it still is. It was interesting then when some of the um, southern farmers have started using these lower-input approaches and someone, uh, Sue Ogilvy, a colleague of mine, actually started looking at the economics and the uh, social well-being of those um, producers and found that their systems were less productive, but they uh, also had less problems paying for the inputs. So they weren't investing so much and having to get so much out of their farms because they weren't paying for a lot of inputs and therefore they didn't need to get huge yields every year. So it was a much more relaxed farming system, if you like. Yeah. And they, they, they turned out to be a more contented group of people who were felt were more grounded in the landscape, if you like. They felt they were doing the right thing with what they were doing. It's a complex, economical ecological and social issue that requires initiative for many people to be resolved. But the main question that we have is, let's say that everyone adopts the less intensive method for farming. How viable is that option? It's, it's kind of the unanswerable questions, except that all I can say is there are a number of farmers who are doing it and yeah. are making enough. Okay. The other... Uh, I think there's an interesting thing that gets raised, which is, um, you know, this constant need to increase the amount of food that we need to um, produce. And the difficulty with that is we waste about a third of the food we produce anyway. So we could go a long way to actually not needing to to just our food production quite as dramatically as is said. And, And I think um, some of the the case for um, more intensive farming is definitely about saying, oh, we need to keep producing more food, we need to up the the, um, production rates and all the rest of it. But we still have to work within the limits of the system. And this is one thing that sounds all very old-fashioned and so on, but as we're learning at the moment, um, nature has its its limits and they're non-negotiable. One thing I think think that uh, I see in people, all my life I've seen people sort of suggesting that their needs are greater so nature's just going to have to accommodate them. 
And that's actually, if there are many rules in ecology, it's that nature does what nature does and we have to learn how nature operates and work within those those laws. Um, It's not going to um, feel sorry for you because you need a new refrigerator or a new utility truck. As we said before, intensive farming gives a lot of fertilizers, it changes the chemistry of the soil to make it more productive for the thing that you want to grow. Many times, the crop that you want to grow is not native, it is exotic to the land. By doing so, you're diminishing the chances for the native species of a plant to grow, which in turn will affect many other things in the environment and the food chain. How would a sustainable, low-intensity farm look like? concept behind this is that uh, we, we consider the sorts of land uses that are, are possible on a landscape. In the case of this mixed farming system, the most intensive land use is a, a crop. The next intensive land use is a, a native pasture which has had many of the trees removed. You can have a native pasture with a woodland still present. Or you can have an area that isn't grazed at all. It's just the natural vegetation. Mm. So there's like four levels of intensity there. Uh, essentially, the the really critical number is the 30-70%, which is no more than 30% intensive land use and no less than 70% um, low-intensity land use, which is basically what's happening to the grassland, whether it's fertilised or not be with or without trees because the plants are the species that are most affected by clearing so plants don't have the odd plant has a long distance dispersal event but mostly plants just drop their seeds near where they are so they're unable to to move around unless they have a more or less connected landscape now birds are exactly the same they need to have a connected landscape But birds are more mobile than plants. They can fly, some of them, you know, will only fly 50 or 100 metres, but they can still fly across hostile areas. And and so the the empirical evidence with a lot of ecological studies of birds is that 30% of the landscape with woodland will provide a connection, connectivity for birds. But 70% is actually required for plants. Now, the really interesting thing is uh, there's a lot of talk and acceptance about herd immunity. People say that if 60-70% of the population is immunised or immune to a disease, the remaining 30% uh, will be protected because the surrounding... Well, it's exactly the same geometry in our landscapes, but it's reversed. So if if 70% of the landscape is suitable for native plants to grow in, it's a connected landscape for them. The the importance of connectivity is that it's it's really critical for plant and animal populations to be sustained over time. So if a, a, a plant or an animal becomes locally extinct, if there's no capacity for uh, new, new individuals of a species to move into uh, that region, that, that then it stays locally extinct. And it's, it's about the capacity for animals to adapt to 
to environmental change over time. They have to be able to move away in unfavourable times and move back when the opportunity to come back and, and re-colonise is there. So ending on a more practical note, is there something that we could do as consumers to help the more sustainable option farming? Many people, and in fact, in response to the article I wrote, many people will say, well, I've stopped eating meat. Um, that's, that's, you know, my contribution to the food problem. And of course, if you're not eating meat, often you're eating soy-based products. So I think the important implications for our research is that cropping is actually the most damaging of the land uses in terms of sustainability. So soybeans aren't necessarily <laughs> the best thing to be eating. A lot of people look at just simply the energy of food versus producing um, protein, the, the energy pyramid associated with producing uh, a plant protein versus animal protein and the amount of water used. And that, there's no, that's absolutely right. Uh, animals use up way more energy and use up more water to produce equivalent amount of protein. However, if you look at it from the landscape perspective and the biodiversity perspective, livestock raised on native pastures are a really critical uh, possibility for coexistence of biodiversity and productivity. And so it's not about whether you're eating meat, in my view. It's about how that the animals are raised. So if they're raised in um, on grain in feedlots, that is an entirely different thing to if they're grass-fed on native pastures. And to say um, we should stop eating meat actually cuts out a possibility of a quite a good ecological coexistence of meat production and high biodiversity. And that's it for the 12th edition of Lefteris Ask Science. I'd like to thank Dr. Sue McIntyre for her time and the discussion we had about ecology and biodiversity. Thank you for staying and listening until the end. If you'd like to help, then please share the episode with your friends since that's the best way for the podcast to grow and create a nice, curious community. You can always contact me on Twitter at Lefteris underscore asks for any suggestions or questions that you might have. Until we meet again, take care, keep learning, and be kind. Thank you.